welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Um, but I'll hit record there. Um, yeah, so look, again, t- typically what we do is, you know, half hour of a review and leave it open for questions either during and I encourage questions or ideas that pop into your mind during as as we go through it uh, or at the end um, questions for me or just comments that pop up because I, I would imagine with the book I'm going to kind of go through um, if you haven't read it you'll have you'll have read stuff similar and um uh, you you might have some questions or yeah, and that's the beauty of it. Again, if you think of something or a an idea or um, something you've read as as I'm going through it, feel free to just you know share that. And uh, as Declan said, if you if you leave it one or two new ideas, uh, that's always good. And and I think a couple of people said they're they like nonfiction or they want to you know learn about books that they typically wouldn't um i'd say so far nearly everything we've done is non-fiction um maybe john might have done one fiction i think um but uh yeah and again it's a lot of about self-development um i'm not going to say self-help but self-improvement i suppose is probably a better word um and, and yeah, tonight, the, the book I'm going to go with is called the happiness advantage by sean aker has anyone read this Sarah has already and, and and Susan well it's a refresher for both of you then um and and I think I read this about oh seven or eight years ago and it's probably one of the first kind of books that I read around the positive psychology and just happiness and in general and I think it's a good probably a good book to to kind of review at at, at the moment as well um and uh, the guy Sean Aker interesting character um, I'll talk a little bit about him and how he, I suppose, stumbled into this area. Uh, and as I said, I'll, I'll be quite informal. I, I don't. The, the first time I did a book review, I had some slides. I think we were in our early stages then, a bit more structured. I don't have slides this time. I have lots of little post-its in here that I'll com- probably pluck at as we go through. But um, I'll just give you a bit of background about Sean first. Anyway, he's a lecturer on happiness and a best-selling author of, of a number of books. Um, and he offers clear principles for improving your state of mind, career path, health, relationships, and and other areas around positive psychology. Uh, and in this book, he comes up with seven principles that fuel success and performance at at work. Um, and ultimately, he I guess you know focuses in around tools that that can develop your happiness and by developing happiness you can become more grateful and become more optimistic as well um one of the first things that i kind of mention you might have heard of um dr tal ben shahar has anyone ever heard of him before um sarah you must have if you've read the book you you definitely did uh so he he effectively was the the mentor for sean and ben tal ben shahar he is um, a harvard lecturer and he created a a program in Harvard on happiness and I think it was back in the early 2000s and it quickly became the most um attended lecture in in Harvard for for the first year students um and it was kind of groundbreaking at the time and and Sean Aker was actually one of his students in the first year or two of of that uh of that program so that's kind of where he kind of got more and more focused into this area um 
And I'll just read a little bit of the introduction to give you a flavor of what it's about. So if you observe people around you, you'll find most individuals follow a formula that have been that has been subtle or not so subtly taught to them by their schools their companies, their parents or society. That is, if you work hard, you will become successful. And once you become successful, then you'll be happy. The pattern of belief explains that most that what more what most often motivates motivates us in life we think if i get that raise or if i get that hit that next sales target i'll be happy if i can just get that next good grade i'll be happy if i can lose those pounds after christmas i'll be happy and so on success first happiness second the only problem is this formula is broken and he goes on to say, if success causes happiness, then every employee who gets a promotion, every student who would receive an acceptance letter, everyone who has accomplished a goal of any type would be happy. But with each victory, each victory our goalposts of success keep being pushed further and further out so that happiness gets pushed over the horizon. And I remember when I read this at the time, I probably was you know, doing a bit of self-reflecting self and soul-searching and and when I did read the whole book back in those days, it, it gave me new ideas and new concepts around happiness that I would say in the last seven or eight years, they've popped up in many different areas, many different books, many different conversations I've had. So um, I'd say this was one of the earlier stages, but uh, it, it definitely hits on a lot of really powerful, powerful ideas. Um, so <clears throat> that's just the intro. There are seven principles that he comes up with, and I'll touch on each of them in a, in a little bit of detail, but just to kind of call them out at the start, the first one is called the happiness advantage. And because positive brains have a biological advantage over over brains that are neutral or negative, this principle teaches us how to retain, retrain our brains to capitalize on positivity and improve our productivity and performance. So that's kind of the first principle. The second is a, called the fulcrum and the leader and the lever and how we experience the world and our ability to succeed within it uh, constantly changes based on our mindset. So this principle focuses on how we can adjust our mindset, which he calls the fulcrum, in a way that gives us power, which is the lever to be more fulfilled and successful. The third effect is called the Tetris effect. Uh, and when our brains get stuck in a pattern that focuses on stress, negativity, failure, we set ourselves up for failure. This principle teaches us how to retrain our brains to spot patterns of possibility so that we can seize opportunity whenever, uh, whenever or, and, and wherever we look. The fifth principle called failing upwards. Uh, and in this one, in the midst of defeat, stress, crisis, our brains map different paths to help us cope. This principle is about finding the mental path not only that leads up that leads us up and out of failure but teaches us to be happier and more successful because of it. The sixth principle is called the Zorro circle and when challenges loom and we get overwhelmed our rational brains can get hijacked by emotions. This principle teaches us how to regain control by focusing first on small manageable goals and then gradually expanding our circle to achieve bigger and bigger ones. Um, the, that was the fifth, actually. The, the sixth is called the 22nd rule. And with this one, sustaining lasting change often feels impossible because our willpower is limited. And when willpower fails, we fall back on our old habits and succumb to the path of least resistance. This principle shows how by making small energy adjustments, we can reroute the path of least resistance and replace bad habits with good ones. 
And the final one, just to touch on, is called social investment. And in the midst of challenges and stresses, some people choose to hunker down and retreat within themselves. But the most successful people invest their time in their friends, peers and family members to propel them forward. This principle teaches us how to invest more of that time in the greatest predictors of success and excellence, which is our social support network. So that kind of at the at the high level gives the the seven um, the seven principles. And what I'll do is kind of flick through some of the things that I've caught out here that I thought was interesting as as I go through the different um, principles. Um, th- this one just as a prelude is called "Change Is Possible," and. Has has anyone read uh, about the the fact that the London taxi drivers um, and and their brain structure? You're probably familiar ar- around how how that how they've learned the map of London because it's not well developed and it, it developed their uh, their I think it's their neocortex or, or, or certain parts of the the thickening of the brain through repet- repetitive actions. Mariana, or a few of you are nodding on that. I haven't read, but uh, it was referenced um, as a study a few times in in the programs and the BBC. I watched uh, fascinating. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so this this book was probably the first time I, I read that. But actually, they give a different example, um, and it, it's called this a behavioural riddle. You are in a cage behind bars. The bars are made of uh, titanium, and your cage is empty. To survive, you must consume two hundred and forty tiny pellets of food every hour. The pellets are provided to you, but unfortunately are located in small holes outside of your cage so that the process of reaching through the bars and actually grabbing a pellet initially takes you 30 seconds per pellet. If you can't complete the task faster, you'll only consume half the amount of the nutrition you need and you'll eventually starve. What do you do? Um, And has has anyone heard that one before? No. Um, So again, this is actually uh, the answer, expand part of your brain in in charge of this task so you can become faster at retrieving the pellets um and this actually touches on the neuroscience about that this was um an experiment done with not humans but squirrel monkeys um and they said after 500 tries the monkeys had become so adept at retrieving the pellets uh, even as the size of the hole can continually decreased they were able to speed up so fast that they were able to get as many pellets as they needed um, and while they were doing that they um the the, the researchers used strategically placed electrodes uh, and they were able to uh, establish the areas of the brain that showed the activity where the monkey was first faced with this conundrum and as they tracked the brain function over and over as the monkey retrieved the pellets they um they could see that the, the actual part of the brain that was doing that had actually um, literally expanded from the section necessary to uh, complete and accomplish the task Um, and over and over it it, it could see that that even in that short space of time by those repetitive tasks that change was possible and that kind of ties into that whole area of neuroplasticity and what you know fires together wires together and the more and more you do anything it's possible so the key message you're trying to get across uh, in, and that is that, yeah, change can happen if you put your intention on it, if you put the effort in and you, you look to do it over and over um, as as a repetitive task. So so I thought that was interesting. Um, the happiness advantage, which is the first principle, I'll just go into a little bit more detail on that one then. Um, 
Aker explains that psychologists traditionally concluded that successful people were happy because of their of their success. Um, in fact, the stress is happiness is a precursor to the success that that I mentioned already. Um, and he gave a, advice that if you were developing, if you are a developing leader, you may want to heed the advice that a manager can buoy or deflate a team with comments or nonverbal communication. A positive comment from your boss can make you an important can make an important presentation um, can counteract. Sorry, a, a positive comment from your boss before you make an important presentation can counteract your stress. But your boss's mention of the presentation's importance could increase your stress and have a negative effect on the outcome. So the key point is that positive supported comments prepare people to excel. And another example was a manager who believes that monitoring his staff or or her staff members is necessary to ensure that they do their work creates uh, who creates a, a group with little job satisfaction. A manager who believes his or her employees are self-motivated, the author insists, can build a team that works with passion. In the effort to create a successful team, Aker suggests that managers should make three positive statements to counteract every negative one. To help your staff reach that highest level, uh, the author prescribes a ratio of six positive statements to every one negative statement. And you may have heard that kind of ratios before. I think mm-hmm. I read a book called Flourishing, I think with Maureen Gaffney a while back. And in that she talks about, I think it's a five to one ratio as well. So, um, Yeah, I've heard of similar in hotel industry. If you really dissatisfy the customer, you need to compensate it seven times more, wherever this action was. Um. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, and we always remember that one negative comment we get, um, you know, even if we get 10 positive ones from from a piece of feedback or or some sort of survey and whatnot. So, um, So that's the kind of first detail around the the happiness advantage principle um you know accentuate the positives certainly give as much praise as you as you can um and again this is all steeped in the kind of positive psychology uh work that that tal had been uh, that that the uh, acre had worked with with um the uh, the lecture in harvard um there was an interesting thing in it called the undoing effect and i know we like sharing these kind of effects has anyone heard of the undoing effect Okay, so I'll, I'll read a bit of an example on, on this to, to try and explain it. So, and he gives lots of kind of stories. So he says, Brian, a salesman from Der, Des, Des, Des Moines, was already feeling nervous about his upcoming presentation when he heard a knock on his office door. A big meeting at four, the boss reminded him, are you ready? This is huge. We need this account. Don't mess it up, buddy. Um, as his boss proceeded down the hall, Brian felt the stress cursing through his body. So again, this probably ties into to the example I mentioned earlier. Even though he already had the present presentation down pat, he was so nervous that he spent the next few hours going over it again and again, trying to anticipate where he might make a mistake and reminding himself how terrible it would be for his company to lose this account. Little did Brian know that the more he focused in mind, his mind on the potentially disastrous effects of a bad presentation, the more he doomed himself to failure. While it may seem counterintuitive for many hardened businessmen, we now know that the best thing Brian could have done in a situation is uh, find a quick jolt of happiness. Why does this work? Because in addition to broadening our intellectual and creative, creative capabilities, 
Uh, positive emotions can also provide a swift antidote to physical stress and anxiety, um, what psychologi- uh, psychologists call the undoing effect. In one experiment, subjects were asked to make a difficult time-pressured speech when they were told they would be videotaped and um, evaluated by their peers. As you might imagine, this induced considerable anxiety and measurable increases in heart and blood rate, uh, just how Brian felt before his presentation. The researchers then randomly assigned the uh, participants to view one of four different videos, two induced feelings of joy and contentment, one was neutral and the fourth was sad. Uh, Indeed, the people primed for positive feelings experienced a faster recovery from the stress and physical effects. And not only had the happy films made them feel better, but they had undone the psychological effects of stress as well. So that's the the undoing effect. And and it's quite interesting how, how, uh, you know, relevant that that certainly can be. So, um, So that was the first one. And let me get to principle number two which is called the fulcrum and the lever. Um, and in this one, so I'll kind of give you a high-level cliff note of this one as well, uh, Aker concedes that the levels of happiness vary for each person, but he assures you that you can improve yours. Your mindset is the fulcrum of, of your attitude and worldview, and the author recommends changing your toolkit to shift your emotional pivot point and boost your strength. To increase your happiness, he asks you to consider these points and these are kind of more the the how-tos consistently spend five minutes a day focusing on your breath uh, can positively affect your health and and outlook so i think that's scientifically proven a lot over the last while Uh, to increase your happiness make a point one day a week um, of doing five things for other people so pick a day and do five things for for other people Um, look at photos of, of loved ones in your office uh, can give you a jolt of happiness. Uh, so can do. So can going outdoors for twenty minutes. So exercising is important. Um, exercise has a lasting, beneficial impact on your mood. Spending money on experiences like concerts or on other people, uh, such as hosting a group dinner, provides long-lasting positive effects over um, more tangible, I suppose, items. Um, and using your best skills or a signature strength buoys your mood. So if you enjoy learning visit a mu- museum or take in some new information each day or or attend a book club perhaps as well that can um, can buoy your mood um uh acre cites the greek alchemist archimedes or scientist archimedes who believed that given the right lever and fulcrum he, he could move the world your lever is your belief in your own abilities and the fulcrum is your belief in your ability to change whether your goal is to climb up the corporate ranks or sifting through uh, or in or, or academic ones, shifting your fulcrum or your mindset in a positive direction and expanding the lever of possibility will help you succeed. Uh, he goes on to talk about your relative perception forms your reality at work and during your leisure leisure time. If you view such time as unproductive, Aker warns, you won't uh, generate the energy that you'll need to bring a positive mindset to having dinner with your friends or family. Viewing your time off as a way to connect with people will improve your productivity. And yeah, and I think that kind of gives you that that idea that um, it, so much of, I guess, what this talks about and what we've talked about in some of the other uh, book clubs is having a growth mindset, having a positive mindset, constantly feeding that 
um, and and knowing that you can do it, probably back to to the uh, point earlier about that that change is is absolutely possible. Um, I'm just seeing if I had any other good examples that um, that popped out during. Uh, during that um, anyone have any comments on that any questions or anything come up uh, as we were kind of thinking through the, the fulcrum and the, the lever makes sense makes sense uh, da, da, da. I had one other example kind of tagged here called the pig pigmalin effect have you heard of that before I might be butchering the pronunciation um Okay, let me give you this one a little bit. Read so according to the Roman poet Ovid, the sculptor um, Pygmalion, Pygmalion could look at a piece of marble and see the sculpture trapped inside of it. In particular, Pygmalion had a vision of this idea, the zenith of all of his hopes and desires. A woman he named Galatea. One day he he began to chisel the marble, crafting it in his vision, um, and. When he was finished, he stepped back and looked at its work. It was beautiful. Galatea was more than just a woman. The statue represented every hope, dream, every possibility, every meaning, beauty itself. Inevitably, Pygmalion fell in love. Um, now, he was no fool. He was not in love with a stone woman. He was in love with the possibility of this idea coming to life. So he asked the goddess of love, Venus, if she could grant him one wish and make this a reality. And so and so she did, at least according to the myth, obviously. Um, so I think that the message there is that, you know, what you put your mind to, what you can believe in will, uh, if you put 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 a uh, you know everything into it has a, a greater chance of of happening than uh, than if you have negative thoughts around it or just have a, a lack of belief in it so um so yeah i thought that was kind of interesting as well okay that's two um so the next one is the tetris effect um does anyone know what the tetris effect is does anyone have an idea yeah, I think um, I'll, I'll explain it. But um, so Aker recognizes that getting stuck on certain ideas or emotions is easy, but stay, staying aware of your obsessions can help you get unstuck. So if you play Tetris for hours, when you look up from the screen, your brain will still fit shapes into spaces effectively. And I think there's research, I know there's research because it, it says it here, that um, that shows that for that people, when Tetris came out, I suppose, first, and they were playing for hours and hours a day, that their vision and view had been so distorted that when they got into... Um, uh, normal day-to-day -day life they can they can start seeing shapes and the one example that i can always remember i think one of my first jobs when i was uh youngish uh i was working in, in tesco's or it was quinsworth at the time and if anyone has packed shelves for hours and hours every day uh, i remember at night like dreaming of packing shelves so there's probably an element of of uh, tetris going on um in 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 my head at that point um but but the Tetris effect, I suppose, can can work, you know, f from a positive perspective as well. Um, so he goes on to say, lawyers can find the flaw in an argument just as easily as other auditors can find tax mistakes, but they're targeting errors, which, as Aker explains, can cause inattentional blindness and make you less able to see the positive. This happens when you focus so much on one aspect of a situation that your brain doesn't pay t does not pay attention to anything else. Mm. 
for example, when you were when you buy a blue Prius, the example here, you start seeing blue Priuses everywhere. Um, and I actually did a post on that. It's called the um, Bader-Meinhof principle or syndrome. If you've ever um, heard of, of, yeah, like if you see a red car, or whatever you've never seen before, and you're aware of it, it becomes very aware to you then. Um, so uh, that that example. It's not that it's not always been there. It's just now your brain um, uh, gives a priority when when you when you focus. So that's that's why it is important. The author instructs to teach your brain to focus on the positive. The more you can do this, Aker writes, the more positive and gratitude you will feel, and and that will benefit your work and productivity. The happiness you will feel will create more optimism and higher expectations of similar outcomes in the future. To focus on the positive, Aker proposes uh, that you take five minutes each day to write down a list of the three good things that happened that day. And I suppose that's one of the the key recommendations if you want to develop a sense of gratitude um, now, but I guess five or six or seven years ago, it may not have been as commonly known. Um, You can include something like an interaction with a friend or a colleague carrying out this exercise teaches your brain to focus on gratitude and moments of happiness. Brain change once, excuse me, thought impossible is now a well-known fact, uh, the author writes supported by some of the most rigorous and cutting-edge neuroscience. Um, Consistency is important in establishing a positive frame of mind. Sharing your three good things with your spouse or family leads to seeing more positive elements in those relationships. This doesn't mean blocking out major problems. Rather, it it calls for prioritizing the positives. So, So just even on that, do people have a developed a, and believe in practicing gratitude and do you notice oh, yes. the, the massive yeah, yeah, positives yeah. of it yes it's very very uh, powerful um a couple of years ago i when i dived into psychology of our brain and how important it is to, to train your brain to pay attention on the positive things um and uh, i learned it from the perspective of how can i help my children um we started just to do simple exercise, um, bringing them to bed. We would just talk about one thing that they are grateful that particular day. And to teach them, I had to start with myself. You know, I'm really grateful for that simple thing, you know, for example, walk we had. And uh, because we we just took it very as a very simple step, very small step, only one thing, and you just say it and then they would say it. We develop the habit, so um, it's it's real habit that we do every evening. And I've noticed myself that I actually became so much happier. You know, doesn't matter how many problems you have in a day, you sort of realize that we're so fortunate in this developed world with the house we can <laughs> we live with the food we have and so on. Yeah, that's my take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the only thing I would add. I know it's, uh, I might have mentioned on this before that the book Time to Think by Nancy Klein, I probably did mention her a number of times, but a tool I took out of that was creating a gratitude um, round table at the start of a meeting where you would, uh, in your team, call out on somebody that has done something for you in the last week that helped you be you know productive or more successful. And then that person would would likewise return the favor to somebody else, and you kind of go around in the circle. And I've gone into meetings that were, you know, 
planned um, out and I knew there was a lot of tension in the air beforehand and used that tactic very well that that changes the mood and everybody's in a much more positive mindset even that simple um, round table gratitude works works really well Um, and and more and more organizations and, and leaders are adopting which is good yeah Okay, um, let me see. Was there anything else in the in the Tetris effect? So I think the key message there is, you know, what you focus on, you can certainly get um, back. And uh, and and again, the yeah, as I kind of scan through it, it is you know emphasizing the practice, the practice, practice element here uh, as as a very important aspect of of that uh, principle. So so principle number four is called failing up reinterpreting your initial reaction to a crisis um, can help you uh, overcome or surmount it surmount it and that is you know certainly more no more truer than than now so um, in the book I think it was about 2013 or 14 so what was fresh in the mind for for acre around the time was the uh, 2008 financial crisis and he talks about a lot of the presentations he gives to um, to organizations and leaders around that time uh that that certainly we're going through a lot of turmoil and a lot of redundancies and 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 uh you know as a result they definitely needed to focus on on happiness so um he talks about when since something devastating like the 2008 financial crisis occurs people go people go into one of three mental directions and probably the same now you might remain stuck in the negative present or you might exacerbate the situation by envisaging the worst uh, worst future consequences or, or probably another term would be kind of catastrophizing there or going down the, the negative rabbit hole. Um, or the third one, you can use the crisis to catapult yourself into a better place. If you can see the opportunities that the problems create, you'll be able to make those opportunities uh, a reality and use the issue to help you move forward um and and move i suppose into a into an opportunity where you can potentially thrive through that um negative situation that that you're in um and i know from i guess from the work i i do we talk about resilience a lot and you know resilience is very much in, in my definition of it is surviving and being you know being able to bounce back um mm. but bring you back to where you are beforehand and what i take a lot from this is that through those disruptions or disasters or crises you can actually not only just bounce back to that level but move forward uh, and there's a term i don't know if anyone have heard of it called anti-fragility where you're actually um the it's the antithesis of being fragile so you're actually thriving in through times of um of of disaster uh and you can talk about anti-fragility from a from a an, an individual perspective, from a leader, from a culture, from a from an organization, from a business model, from a strategy perspective, you can dive into it. There's um um yeah, there's a couple of books on it. There's I can't remember off the top of my head his uh, um similar sounding name to Tal Shahar. I think it's uh, Nassim is the guy's name about anti fragility. He also wrote the book The Black Swan. Um, you can mm. check him out, but. Uh, but I absolutely believe in in that part of what um, what he's talking about here, and and just to give you one other example that I kind of uh, picked out here, he talks about ways that you can um, approach, you know, this moving from that maybe spiraling downwards or 
or, or being stuck in the moment to, to looking upwards um, and if you've done kind of cognitive behavioral therapy and, and those sort of tools there's there's a model called the ABCD model of interpretation which uh, focuses on adversity for the A belief consequence and uh, disputation and in that adversity is event is the event that we can't change it is what it is belief is our reaction to the event why we thought it happened and what we think it means for the future is it a problem that is only temporary and local in nature or do we think it is a permanent and perfa- or, or and pervasive um, are there ready solutions or do we think it is unsolvable if we believe the former that is if we see the adversity as short term or as an opportunity for growth or appropriately confined to the only part of our life then we maximize the chance of a positive consequence. But if the belief has led us down a more pessimistic path, helplessness and inaction can bring negative consequences. That's when it's time to put the D to work. And the D on disputation involves first telling ourselves that our belief is just that, a belief, not fact, and then challenging or disputing it. Um, Psychologists recommend that we externalize this voice uh, so that it's like we're actually arguing with the other person um and what is the evidence of the this belief is it all right effectively you're you're challenging that belief um, and finally if the adversity is truly as bad is it as bad as we first thought this particular method is called decatastrophizing taking time to show ourselves that while the adversity is real it is potentially not as bad or catastrophic as we had made out uh, it to be in the end um so people familiar with that abcd model have you heard of it before there's a i think there's an abcde model as well there's another letter um that, that yeah. kind of yeah further ABCD, oh, that's that's the one i'm very much familiar with the psychology course uh by the leader in the industry she's massive youtube following um julia christina and uh, this model, ABCBO, is is very powerful, especially if the, if it's practiced in practiced regularly as as everything. It has potential to rewire your brain, and it's exactly what you said, Rob. It's essentially you're becoming aware that uh, certain triggers cause certain emotion, and this emotion is triggered by your thoughts. And thoughts, they're just thoughts. You know, if you if you if you if you're aware of those thoughts and you know that they will pass and you substitute them with the better thoughts, um, essentially you won't have the negative emotions that some of us um, been absorbing and carrying. And uh, yeah, very powerful model. Mm-hmm. The key thing, as you said, though, is, the, is to practice it. But I think a lot of the times until you, you know, you almost need to have it beside you all, yeah. all day every day so that when those yeah. s- incidents excuse me happen whatever big or small they are that you're yeah. you have I'm a trigger looking- to get your brain to use yeah. this exactly rob i'm actually you know just it, it's in my notes uh, sitting with the examples <laughs> so i can i can open because i only recently started to practice uh, understanding how important it is um and it's it's in personal settings it's, it's in business settings it's on a huge on the complex projects where we we know how how many of them go wrong and and why they go wrong um it's um yeah uh, I'm I'm big fan of it. I was introduced to it recently, and I think after practicing for a month, I already see the results just from the awareness uh, more than anything, and understanding the, the the workings of the brain and the ability to change it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's pretty powerful um, and easy to remember when you you know your mm-hmm. ABCD anyway. So um, cool. So I'll, I'll keep going. Uh, the next one is called the Zaro effect, um, which is principle number five. And when life overwhelms you, start with manageable tasks. And this one certainly falls into kind of a lot of stuff. I would advocate of kind of small bite-sized efforts and, and kind of 1% better in ways. Um, Acker, Acker cites Zorro, the famed swordsman of all people. In his narrative, Zorro had a mentor who trained him in one new skill at a time until Zorro mastered each one. Uh, he couldn't move forward. So when you seek to change your life, the author recommends taking small steps. If the amount of work is facing you is overwhelming, he advises you to identify small tasks that you can control and expand from there. And, you know, with any kind of project management mindset, it's kind of chunking things up into smaller tasks um, certainly is, is a good idea. Uh, for example, Acre cites a senior executive who returned from work on a on a big project to find 1,400 emails in his e- inbox. Sounds familiar. Uh, a consultant recommended dealing with only the newest emails for several days. This gave him uh, gave the executive a sense of control over his environment, and he was able to clear out the remainder of this backlog within a reasonable amount of time. Um, and remain returning to this main theme, Acre suggests that you. That your mindset and beliefs determine the level of control, uh, the control you feel you have. And this is where he talks about the internal uh, locus of control, uh, an internal versus a, an external locus of control. And something definitely talked about on this, I think, in the past, um, where you have that sense of of from an internal perspective, no matter what happens, you you have a, a control and can control how you react to it. Whereas with those with the external locus of control, um, you know, effectively, you're you're blaming everybody else for whatever happens to you, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and yeah, you can think of you know world leaders that are pretty pr- pretty good at uh, being external mm-hmm. locus of control. Um, as an example, Acre offers a uh, offers a woman who won awards for her work but believed that she was merely lucky, thereby dismissing the opportunity to tr- truly feel uh, satisfaction about her work. Uh, Acre understands that everybody can fall prey to having an external locus in stressful situations. If you find yourself overwhelmed, first express your feelings by writing them down or talking with somebody. Being self-aware, you can then determine what is in your control and what isn't. So like everything starts with self-awareness, has a a big uh, foundational element. Uh, the way to move forward, the author says, is to release the issues you don't control and look for the areas that you can change. Uh, defining a smaller, uh, even still somewhat challenging place to begin with gives you confidence in yourself to expand your efforts. Setting realistic goals. Uh, the, the most successful people, the author writes, are the ones... Um, are the ones that can capitalize on the positive and reap rewards at every turn. So, so yeah, I think it's it's a clear enough message. The Zorro Circle is a good um, a good way of remembering it as well. Uh, like a lot of these books, for every principle or for every um, action or set of steps, there's always an acronym or a, a kind of hook to keep you to make you remember. Um, but the key messages, as we see in a, in a lot of them, is, is similar, right? Like there's probably uh, re- repeating um, examples there. Um, so two to go, and the principle six is around what he calls the twenty second rule. 
and and willpower alone is insufficient to change a habit um and i thought this one was kind of interesting enough as well um he he advocates rationing your energy so you can stay inspired increasing your success by limiting your options and defining what you plan to do the night before you want to do it the less energy you expend to make a change the more successful you will be eating well exercising getting a good night's sleep are also beneficial and knowing that this does doesn't make those things easier to do the author understands um, good habits are difficult to establish and maintain but you can develop them the same way as you can learn skills creating a habit requires the brain time to encode it um, and i think uh, in here he talks about kahneman's work and the kind of you know the brain uh how 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 lazy our brains are and it tries to conserve energy at every every opportunity um so when we try to take on something new and i was actually writing a bit about it today this concept of brain fog have you heard of brain fog yeah um where um our cognitive load and the amount of information we can take in is 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 limited and i think a, pe- a lot of people have been suffering from brain fog as a result of having to m- to work from home and everything that has come up as a result of the pandemic has made so many new uh, activities and interactions happen on a day-to-day basis our cognitive load has been overloaded much quicker and as a result um it has this impact of causing that idea and concept of brain fog um because what we were maybe used to and doing certain things on autopilot in in the past allowed us to keep that buffer of of space in our brain to to deal with those new things that came at us whereas now there's so many new things coming at us or have been it had a consequence of uh depleting the energy or filling up that that buffer much quicker and as a result making us feel a little bit more foggy in in the brain but uh i kind of digress on uh, onto what the 22nd rule is about here um but basically his um his example or the reason he called it the 22nd rule effectively is by putting kind of uh, something in the way that would um add i suppose 20 seconds to something that would take him 20 seconds to do something he tried to, to remove that 20 second um challenge so that he could do something immediately the example i think he talks about is um playing playing guitar so Uh, redirecting the path to 22nd rule he says in allowing himself to be swept along this path the example he's talking about this guy ted uh, ted had become ensnared in a series of very bad habits in in his case these all involved procrastination which got me thinking could the psychological mechanism that we were derailing ted's productivity also explain why i had failed my regime of guitar playing had the path to least resistance led me astray i thought back back to the initial experiment i had kept my guitar tucked away in the closet out of sight and out of reach it wasn't far out of the way of course my apartment isn't that big just about 10 20 seconds of extra effort it took me to walk to the closet and pull it out um uh, and that proved enough of a deterrent to prevent me from practicing so i had tried to overcome this barrier with willpower but after only four days my reserves were completely drained and that's kind of the link of willpower and and the amount of buffer in your brain if I couldn't use uh, self-control to ingrain the habit, at least not for an extended period, I now wondered what if I could eliminate the amount of activation energy it took to get started. Clearly, it was time for another experiment. I took the guitar out, bought a two 
$5 guitar stand, set it in the middle of my living room. Um, and although nothing had changed except the now, instead of being 20 seconds, the way the guitar was immediate, three weeks later, I had uh, looked up a habit grid with 21 proud check marks against it. So just by doing eliminating the 20 seconds, he was mm-hmm. um, able to be a bit more productive. Um, I think um, James Clear in Atomic Habits uses the exact same example of the guitar in the middle of the uh, floor. James Clear <laughs> sounds like he stole a lot of examples from a lot of these I'm guys. I'm thinking so. <laughs> yeah. That's why I've never bought into James Clear. <laughs> um, yeah, I've heard an example of the shoes, uh, having sports shoes left uh, in the in the hall uh, also forces the habit to, to just go for the run after... Um, yeah, exactly. I normally leave the shoes literally looking at me at the door when when I when I'm challenged mentally not to do it. Um, but uh, but again, a, a nice little example to to give it. And then the final one, which which is one as I was kind of reading about it again, is that it's one probably the biggest challenge we face at the moment is that social connection um, and social investment. And when in crisis move more more move towards people not away from them so in the best and worst of times nurture and maintain a a circle of supportive friends when a crisis occurs people need to pull together acre reports that successful people embrace their social networks during times of difficulty studies have found that the happiest 10 percent of people worldwide have strong social networks having a strong or weak social network can affect your lifespan as much as spo- smoking, blood, high blood pressure, exer- exercise, um, short interactions with other people while passing in the hallway uh, or the virtual hallway, for example, can reduce um, stress levels. I think that's, uh, mm. if you think about the brain, I think that's serotonin and oxytocin and all of those things that, that are um, um, released or triggered. A strong yeah. positive relationship between your, you and your boss Acre, acre underscores is more beneficial for your company and healthier for you and I've read research on that I think that emotional connection or relationship with your boss is the most uh, um, important um, well-being factor for 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 for, for people that, that are in, in, in employment more so than financial more so than health and uh, I think even emotional so that that uh, psychological safety element is is extremely important um and i think i'll just finish on this one example if there was one still here uh that, that uh, i know there was an example in this where i think it's like a 70 year study where where they had tracked people from the 1930s um you're probably yes. familiar a couple That's of I was about it, the ted talk was it the ted talk in cambridge did it experiment what truly makes people happy right yeah. could have been yeah i think he talked about um just the details of that study and did yeah they ultimately just came it came back to those that were tracked over the 70 years those that were considered happiest were the ones that had the best social yeah. connections and that had most love in their life i guess than um than, the than, there's a very good TED, TED talk um if you search what truly makes people happy, and one of the most watched ones actually, and the, the gentleman from England, from Cambridge, I think he, he gives actually accounts of the study. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, so that's pretty much it. And I think let me see, is there anything else I missed? Um. Duh, duh, duh. 
just the last section was while independently effective each happiness building process is stronger when you embrace two or more of those together um so it's a combination of of the the seven or, or which ones can you do on a on a data or a weekly or a monthly basis um and you know they're very practical they're very easy i think to, to do you could probably do all seven in, in one day in some instances uh, sol- solid social networks can even help you overcome inertia when you're starting a new habit happiness is not the belief that we don't need to change um, the author writes it's the realization that we can so that's the happiness advantage uh hopefully you got something out of it and made you feel a little bit happier as well perhaps <laughs> I'm happy now it's over as always because uh, I don't feel as much prepared as I should have been but um, anything anyone else uh, got from that or questions or other books that you've read around the, the topic um, not so much a book I've read but um, many years ago I did quite a lot of um, self-actualization courses and um, the theory I suppose or something i I taken away from that and and still use is about um, emotion and decision and how they're separate. You know, um, if you sit and wait till you're ready to make that decision or you're emotionally confident enough to take that step, you could wait forever. You have to make the decision. And I suppose what combines that is, you know, you act it. You pretend it, and then it becomes it becomes second nature, and then you become more confident in that way. Um, one of the roles I've just retired—I I retired from most recently was um, I was a funeral celebrant, and that at times was um, extremely difficult, and uh, I really had to resource what I've just talked about and, and really, you know, make myself get up on that podium and, and really, you know, sort of go, because you can't make a mistake with a funeral. There is no, you know, you can't do it tomorrow. You can't say to everybody, I got that wrong, you know. So, but this whole notion of, um, yes, you know, you make the decision and then everything follows, I think has helped me, helped me a lot. Mm. Yeah, I relate a lot to, to what you just said, Marianne. The, the, the decision is, is the, the act, uh, mm. taking an, an, an act on it is, is actually making you realize that you can do it and then you can improve each time uh, versus yeah. uh, if we sit and wait for that when I'm going to feel like it, we're never going to mm. feel like it. We just have no. to jump into it and and that's why the kind of agile project management mindset is 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 what really works that that you just start doing it if if you're dealing with uncertainty and and you adjust as you go along because while you're doing it you you learn constantly as mm. you do and, and and you improve so um yeah, yeah it's very, very powerful and and fair play to you <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i think um well something that people struggle with you know, they fear making a decision. They have to take responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. They have to stand over it. And if it all falls apart, they have, they're have answerable to it, regardless of whether it's to themselves and work with their colleagues, to their relatives, anything like that. And they, they struggle with that. Step forward, make a decision, follow through, and let's capture our lessons learned at the end. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a massive thing. Um, 
And it's something that I suppose I, I do a lot at work is just pushing people to let's just do this. Let's just make this decision. Let's just see how it turns out. It's probably not going to be that bad. It actually always yeah. feels better, even if it doesn't work, right? You just kind of get a boost of adrenaline and, you know, dopamine and all of these things happen when you take that step forward. Yeah. And sometimes it works. It doesn't. You learn from it, and but you're empowered by doing it. So, Yeah. yeah but, but what it's, is important that the, the fear that the people have a culture developed by the leaders that that uh, they feel they can do it. Um, anyone read um, and know about Brenna Brown, Dare to Lead, an extremely powerful book. Um, I, I so much respect her. I think we just have this titanic shifts that are starting to happen. It just can't go on any longer when people are paralyzed by the fear of uh, going and taking that leap and, and really proposing something, especially the introverts, um, and, and you're trying to make the change happen. And there's this silence because because they they're just afraid. They're afraid that their boss is going to say that you know what you're coming up with. <laughs> I know it's the whole different digression mm. now, but it, just what you said, Jennifer. It's uh, it prompted me to say that uh, being brave really depends on how what culture you have in your company, what culture sleeps mm. build. Yeah. It does, yeah. And and it's down to the person, down to the situation that they're in, down to, you know, I, like um, if I take myself, for example, people that I went to school with don't remember me. They don't re recognize me if, if, you know, well, back when you could stop and say hello to somebody on the street because I was a complete introvert. I was a total wallflower. So what I did is I faked being an extrovert until I got a little bit more confident about it you know because I knew that I wasn't going to progress well I came to a realization that I wasn't going to get very far in life if I didn't get over myself and just start drop the fear and just get on with it I'm still terrified of talking to people but <laughs> you shouldn't be so great at it you're doing a good job there anyway yeah yeah it just it reminds me sorry Declan did you want to go ahead Okay. Uh, I was just, just going to say, it brings me to a, a book that may or may not have been covered here, Black Box Thinking. And it was about that whole idea that when we make any decision and there's a mistake, that actually it's there that we can get so much information. And that's why I was so interested in that piece about Tetris, because even in a lot of the error situations, particularly in medical legal uh, situations, it's actually when the problem becomes so urgent and so significant that all other possible solutions become impossible to access. And they gave, cited a good few examples of this. And it's the same thing you're talking about when we put our attention too much on the problem. Uh, we stop seeing anything else and equally it's inverse is true. And I thought that was, that was really good. So yeah, across, across a, a lot of different, I suppose, ways, not just about habits, but also about good decision-making and also good learning. Mm -hmm. Actually, I reckon that's prime candidate for the next book club. I'd say that's, <laughs> There's a couple of Is it not? There. Have you not done no. one of the, done it recently? Okay. It's a great, a great book. Agreed. That's yeah. a great one. Yeah. I'd love you to do that, Ashling. Yeah. Okay. Great. Just depends on the date. <laughs> two, two weeks. Two weeks from tonight, you're locked in. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
Bob, is there any anything said in that book around like uh, negative emotions? There's, there's there's a lot of pushback at the moment around like almost the social pressure to be happy, be happy, be productive, be happy. This this term toxic positivity and just understanding. Yeah, absolutely. There there's some lovely little nudges in there about like how to how to boost yourself, but then also allowing the space for negative emotions, which which are also effective and, you know, are good for us. So mm-hmm. th- does it mention anything about that in the book? <laughs> not, not, there's a couple of examples where he's talking about giving, um, giving, I think he was given a presentation in Wall Street on positive, on the book, right? And he said, um, one guy in the room put his hand up and he said, you know, this is all kind of mumbo jumbo, you know, and he was like the real, and, and he, your man, uh, Aker said, like, he was one of the first times he was presenting on it and he, he said, he just felt himself falling through the floor with, how am I going to respond to this? And, you know, he just cited some examples and, you know, took it, took it on board and continued with the lecture. And he said at the end of the, the three hour session, he was having lunch and a couple of the analysts sat with him and, they just mentioned, you know, that guy that asked the question, he's the most toxic person that, that we have to work with. And he just kind of cited that those that tended to bring it up were the ones that he said, it, he actually said it was, isn't this all common sense? And yeah. and he said, yeah, a- absolutely. It's common sense, but it's not common action that, that your man was very, and it tends to be maybe those that push back. Mm. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, that, that that's a blanket statement. I'm just saying that some people that would be a very um, almost aggressively against a lot of this is because they're uh, afraid of it in many ways, or, or, or reluctant to to buy into it, and potentially they're you know they're they're the ones that might need it the most. But um, to be fair, I think he was going so far in on happiness in this because it was it was one of the first probably mainstream bestsellers around the topic that. Uh, he, he probably didn't, he, he probably over-indexed on happiness and didn't maybe balance it out as much. I'd say there's more now, though. There's always a backlash to things, right, Eck? And I'd say that's probably what's what's happening now is this kind of bit of a backlash and, you know, toxic positivity or whatever, as you called it, is there's there's a counterbalance coming in, maybe. Declan, before we came on there, I literally was just reading, so I subscribed to positivepsychology.com, and the title was The Upside of Defensive Pessimism, The Potential Benefit of Anxiety. So it it was exactly that. And it was like sometimes that people use pessimism in order to help them move forward, to actually get through and to do something, and that as long as it's not self-sabotaging, it's actually okay. Yeah. You know, so you don't have to be feeling happy about doing the presentation or whatever. You can be really this isn't going to go well for me, but I'll do it. And then, you know what I mean? So, yeah, kind of to your that's, point. That's, no, that's right. I, I, I have to say it. I am an absolute big believer in gratitude and <laughs> happiness. I'm I'm not one of those people. Yeah. <laughs> back. But yeah, I, I just think there, there's always a thing about balance, balancing the, the two. And like, so yeah, you can be really excited and that will motivate you for a presentation. But you can also use fear in a sort of a real positive way of, of getting mm-hmm. a big presentation. So, you know, it, mm-hmm. what it is, is framing, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because sometimes you feel this pressure to be happy then, and then you feel even worse that you're not feeling happy and, yeah. <laughs> and you're a mess. And toxic positivity is really bad for us. So you've got to start off being real and accepting reality. And obviously that's so important with everything that's going on in the world at the moment. Like you have to start off being real and authentic 
And then from there, maybe moving to, right, what can I focus on that is that is good? Um, I know Sean wrote that book. It was a number of years ago, Rob, I think. And there's they're calling it now third wave positive psychology. So in third wave, it is a lot more accepting of negative emotions and, you know, being authentic and that being really important as a baseline. And then from there, using all all of this stuff that's still really relevant. Um, it's just you shouldn't deny the reality or deny the feelings. There's a book, um, Emotional Agility by Susan David. Has anyone ever read that? Yes. Yeah. Very good book. Very yeah. good. She actually Great was in Cork. She was in yeah. Cork. We At that, Aoife, she was in Cork a oh, couple no. of years ago when the IMI opened up down here and she presented and I met her afterwards and got... Uh, got her book and she signed it and I tried to get her on the podcast but she's obviously way too high profile for that but um, she in the book she talks about exactly that as well about you know it it can be dangerous to be too optimistic you know mm-hmm. if you think everything is going to go your way um, that can actually backfire on you and you can you develop blind spots almost then to what reality is so it is kind of to that point like everything there's a balance there's an in-between there, there's a, a a mindset of keeping both kind of poles um, in, in, in play you know mm-hmm. Yeah, a different uh, element of that. And I'm not sure if it fits, but I'm kind of curious because it's something I'm kind of working on at the moment. When lockdown started, um, you know, we were working really hard on, you know, everybody had gone home, people were stressed, they were fearful, you know, it's a new situation. Um, and I was working really hard on being upbeat and positive in every meeting that I went to and nothing's a problem and everything can be solved and it's all fine and, you know, all the rest of it. And about, I think about six months in, I well, maybe less, I landed into another Zoom meeting. Hi, everybody, how's it going? How are you all doing? And all the rest of it. And somebody said, I'm so glad you're here. I always look forward to you joining a meeting. You're so upbeat and positive, and it just gets me through the day. It bottomed me out completely. I was like, <laughs> I can't. Like, I realized I'd been giving all of my positivity to every meeting, trying to keep people mm-hmm. going. And uh, I'd, I'd absolutely nothing left at the end of it. So I found that that was... I don't know how it fits and I'm still trying to define it, but I ended up finding quite a toxic situation then because everybody was sitting around waiting for me to bring the positivity um, and, and nobody else was, you know, so um, still, still working on pulling people out of themselves and trying to get them to, you know, so that the, the exercise around, I took note of the exercise that you mentioned, um, Rob, just around going, asking, people to mention something positive about somebody else mm-hmm. i'm thinking that's something that i might start bringing into meetings just to try and Def, you know empower yeah, them to do to, it, yeah 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 exactly now i have pulled back <laughs> i have pulled back because i need a little something left for myself at the end of the day <laughs> mm-hmm. um you know otherwise i'd fall apart um but it was quite an interesting moment to realize that people were relying on just one person to to bring the positivity mm. you know um whereas i think people need to be relying on themselves really um and and, and i should step back and not try so hard <laughs> so uh, like you were saying you know sarah a little bit more authenticity i was pushing myself too hard to to, to be positive um still still trying to define that whole space the interesting 
I am. Um, I deliver a workshop in resilience um, in the work that I do. And um, I talk about the Stockdale paradox. I'm not sure if you've heard of General Stockdale. So he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam and um, he and many others were prisoner of war and were trying to cope under extremely challenging situations. And there was different groups of people. So you had a certain group who were extremely positive and you had another group who were extremely negative. And then you had another group, a third group, who were what they called realistic. And the positive, the negative group died first, um, which I guess you might expect, but the positive group also died uh, because they were convinced that they would be released by Christmas. And when they weren't released by Christmas, a lot of them lost hope and died. And the group that survived was the group who had what they call realistic optimism, where they went, we will be released someday, but we don't know when. And I know when COVID started, I was convinced it'll all be over by March, by May, sorry, not by March, it started in March, by May. And um, I remember when I was looking at this, because I started working on resilience workshops then at that point, I remember when I was putting that content together, it really spoke to me because I was like, here I am convinced in my mind, this will all be over by May. Um, <laughs> thankfully, I got over it and I <laughs> started using some of what um, the Stockdale Paradox teaches us, which is, you know, about being realistic, but being optimistic as well. I will be released. It will all be over soon. I will come out the other side. I just don't know when and I'm going to be okay and do what I can in the interim and you've probably heard then the other principle and um, that's also in man's search for meaning was people who survived were the people who focused on what they could do to support other people and that was huge for coping as well yeah. that, that's interesting it sounds like my own uh, personal motto is prepare for the worst and hope for the best <laughs> yeah <laughs> Just on, um, Declan, you said it was in two weeks' time, uh, the 26th. I'm actually at one of my, uh, well, I've been invited to a to another Toastmasters meeting, so I can't make it for that Tuesday. If it's okay, I'll certainly do it two weeks later, if that's okay. But I'm evaluating somebody at a Toastmasters meeting on that 26th. That's perfect. Yeah, we have we have them lined up for every two weeks from now till, I guess, the it'll, it'll just keep going. So we'll, we'll put you in for the, uh, the 9th of February. Perfect. That's good. good. Anyone would like to put their hand up for for the twenty sixth now that it came open? Don't all do it at once, obviously. So you know, <laughs> it's a safe space, guys, as you can see at this stage. You know, so have a think about it. I, I would say, you know, there's no no panic. Um, uh, get in touch with me or deck and. You know, you've seen how it how it operates now, anyway, and uh, it'll always be raw and uh, and 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 raw and ready, but and real, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Rob, uh, before we finish up, if you were to give us one takeaway that you had from the entire book, just one key thing, what would you say to us? Your biggest learning. What was my biggest learning? Like, I, I, it's more about probably reinforcing an awful lot of. I I think you know as I kind of look through it again and look at the um I, I think for me I suppose that it's like the actual point I mentioned earlier the that kind of batter mind half is when you start to notice something it becomes more and more aware and it's um it's reframing 
disruption and challenges that we're facing and, and looking for ways to try and see it as a potential opportunity, you know? So like, like this, right, we're in lockdown. I think it's the best, I know it's we're a horrible time, but it's a great time to do a bit more self-development, to go, you know, run every day. I have that extra hour in the day. People talk about not being able to commute, you know, being grateful that, that we have jobs is a good thing, but, but using that extra 30 minutes a day or whatever to do something totally different that can help you develop. So it's kind of failing upwards or, or looking for those opportunities that um, might be not visible in uh, in the kind of, times of crisis and times of disruption and i think you know his his recommendations was coming out of the 2008 crisis uh, you know it's very it, it's it's true now and i think disruption is constantly you know going to come our way so it's just been to your point about being resilient and i think you know being um even looking beyond that is is kind of what sticks with me all right Thanks, guys Rob. Thank you all for coming. I hope those that joined for the Thank first you. time will come back. Uh, it was great to have you all. And uh, thanks for the interaction. And yeah, look forward to seeing everybody in a couple of weeks. Hey, folks. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone. Pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past. And it will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% Better Slack community, which you can join for free. And interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far, and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out, rob at robofthegreen.ie. And of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy, but only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard, but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.